gathering this morning as we prepare our hearts to enter into your word. God, we proclaim that above all else, we adore you. Father, it is so true, I know it's true for me, that our hearts are so prone to wander and lead, leave the God we love. So help us, Father. Help us this week, help us this day, help us this moment to be refreshed and renewed and filled once again by the beauty, the presence, the power of your spirit. As we enter into this time in your word, would you do the work of illumination in our hearts and in our minds to show us exactly what you would need us to see today how we can live lives that bear the glory of the image of the one whose name we call. Father, would our time together in the word today be edifying to us as it is glorifying to you. May the words that flow from my mouth be yours and yours alone. And we pray all this in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So great to be with you today and have the opportunity to lead us in our time in the Word. Uh, as Taylor made reference to, you know, I, I started full-time staff here uh, back in January, and the, the, what I was told by the guys was that the, the goal was always to dress as closely like Taylor as possible. Uh, none of them did that, so I think maybe they're hazing me as the new guy. Uh, We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last several months, and as we've walked through that, we've been looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ should radically transform us as his followers, and how so often the overwhelming majority of what Jesus teaches us stands in direct opposition to the worldview of the culture at large, the foundational philosophy of the world, whether it was in Jesus' day or whether it's all the way forward here to our day. And for the last few weeks specifically, we've been looking at how Jesus calls us as his followers to action, to draw lines in the sand between true and false doctrine, between true and false teaching, between true and false conversion, and between the placement of true and false hope. And with that in mind, I thought it would be fitting for us today to get practical as we look at one crucial key for living out our walk with Christ with some measure of success. You only have to be walking with Christ for about five minutes to realize that once we begin a true relationship with him, the internal battle begins. We don't just wake up one day and realize that all of our struggles with sin and temptation and challenges have just gone away because we have begun to follow Christ. The theological truth upon our conversion is that the Holy Spirit of God enters us and begins a transformational and regenerating work within our hearts and minds and souls through a process that we call sanctification. And this process is an ongoing process from the day that we trust Christ until the day that he calls us home. For some of us, there might be areas of our lives that when the Holy Spirit enters us, that God dramatically rearranges our desires and we're delivered from things that have been there and struggles for a long time. But if you're like me, and I have a hunch that you are, there's some areas that you continue to wrestle with. There's some things that God is working out of you over 
a period of time over the years of your, li- of your life. And for some of us, there might be things that we wrestle and struggle with that God just brings us through in order to receive uh, glory for himself and to fulfill his purposes in us and in others. So what all of this tells us is that once we begin to walk with Jesus, we become like salmon swimming upstream against the current of this world system. We're no longer being carried along by the philosophy and the worldview of the culture around us. Instead, we begin to follow a calling to radical transformation in every area of our lives. And because of this, we naturally begin to experience this battle within, this battle of two natures. The sin nature that we were originally born with that caused us to pursue the self-gratifying desires of our flesh and the new nature we are reborn with that calls us to pursue Christ and exalt him in a life of godliness and righteousness. So today, we're gonna look together an excerpt from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia and consider how it is only by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we can find success in the battle against sin. Because we're jumping right into the book of Galatians here, I wanna give us a little context. So as the apostle Paul was uh, embarking upon uh, his calling to plant churches uh, throughout Asia and the surrounding area, his first missionary journey, he planted a church in Galatia, somewhere in the mid-40s. And after initially planting this church, it didn't take very long for false teachers to come in and to begin to promote false doctrine. The very thing that we were looking at in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus tells us to be on guard against, the church at Galatia had allowed these false teachers in. And specifically, you had elements of Judaism and the law, teachers that were teaching that in addition to faith in Christ, that the church needed to continue to be circumcised, to continue to perform works of the law and live according to the law in order to truly be saved. And so Paul here in in the whole book of Galatians collectively is writing a letter of rebuke to a church that was so quickly led astray by false doctrine. And he's urging in this letter a spirit-filled life rooted in Christ rather than a merit-based life rooted in the law. As Blaine mentioned during the text, uh, during the scripture reading, Paul's warning collectively against the legalism of rigidly following a set of rules in order to find ourselves in Christ, but he also, as he's encouraging us in the freedom that we have in Christ, warns us against the opposite extreme of allowing, presuming upon that grace and allowing that freedom to give us license to sin. And so as we enter into chapter five and get about halfway down here to verse 16, we see first that Paul is showing us the nature of this battle described. Every single one of us from the day we trust Christ is locked in a battle. From the day we trust Christ till the day he calls us home. The new nature given us by the indwelling Holy Spirit begins to stand against our sinful desires of our flesh and call us to repentance. And we find within ourselves for the first time a strong opposing force to some of those disordered natural desires. And while that might sound like bad news, Paul is telling us here, it's just the opposite. Because the spirit-filled life is the best antidote to succumbing to our sinful desires. And this is good news. Because now, instead of being left to our own devices and destruction, and even our fruitless efforts to try to work towards God or be good, we've been given the gift of God's very spirit within us dwelling with us to urge us forward and empower us for a life of godliness and holiness. So let's look together 
Beginning in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So as we look at the nature of this battle described, we first see the command with a promise to receive. Verse 16 is an unequivocal statement. It's a command that's followed by a promise, and the command is walk by the Spirit. The word walk here that Paul uses in the Greek is peripatate. It means to walk around after someone, to walk in a particular direction. Aristotle's followers were called peripatates because they walked after him, they followed him, sought to mimic him in his teaching and, and what uh, he was focused on. And this is not a call. This call to walk in the Spirit is not a call to some special experience or second experience or higher life. It's not dependent upon our training or if we've been to seminary, what level of education we've had, what our role is, what our calling or position. This is a general command, a calling for all of us as followers of Christ. And it implies a day-by-day, moment-by-moment alignment with and yielding to and surrender to the Holy Spirit. This is when we wake up, when we go about our tasks like cooking breakfast or making meals or changing diapers or fixing the car or driving to work or watching the game. It implies all of our interactions and our relationships and our marriages and our parenting and our relationships with one another and the body of Christ, no matter what we're doing, from the moment we wake to the moment we sleep, we are called to walk in the Spirit. And this is only possible if we are in Christ. And notice what Paul says with the command, he gives us a promise. And we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say the desires of the flesh won't be there. He doesn't say we won't still have battles with temptation and sin. What he does say, though, is that there is no neutral ground. We are either actively walking in surrender and yielded to the Spirit's guidance and influence and empowerment in our life, or we are open and prone to wonder, as we sang in the song, to follow after our sinful desires of our heart and fulfill the desires of the flesh. It doesn't mean we'll never sin again. It doesn't mean we'll never give in to a sinful desire. But what Paul is saying is that in the days or the moments or the seasons that we're actively walking in the Spirit, we will be empowered to deny the sinful desires of our flesh. Church, it's simply impossible to sin and yield to the Spirit at the exact same time. It's, if we're yielding to the Spirit actively, we are not in that same moment yielding to sin Laurie and I just had the blessing of having our two older grandkids with us for a week. They're three and two. And uh, it was very uh, emotionally uh, filling, and it was very physically draining. <laughs> because I remember what it was like to have a three and a two-year-old at the house, and it was quite a long time ago before I had that. And so we're out in the yard playing with him one day, and Asher, our two-year-old, was playing with a ball, and uh, he lost the ball, and it took off towards the road. And what did he do? He immediately went running after it. And so Laurie was closer to him than me, so she overtook him first and stopped him, and I caught up to him, and then she went and got the ball. And as I was thinking about that in preparation for this, you know, I was just thinking about the fact of, of what a picture that is of walking with the Spirit. You know, as a toddler, a toddler can be walking down the sidewalk beside the road with his ball, and it's, if he loses his ball and it runs out in the road, what does he do? He goes for it. His desire is to go get my ball. He's completely oblivious to the danger around him. He's not paying attention to the cars that are coming that could harm him. He's just going after the ball. He's going after the desire of his flesh. But that same toddler walking down the sidewalk, holding his father's hand, 
If he loses his ball, his father is now a restraining influence to keep him from running after that thing that will harm him and keep him at a place of safety and protection because he's walking with his father. And so we see a picture of walking in the spirit. Verse 17, Paul continues, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So first we see the command or the promise to receive. Next we see the conflict and the power to succeed. We see here clearly the battle, the conflict, the opposition that we're locked in. What our flesh desires naturally, what we're born with, this sin nature, is against the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God, who's perfectly holy, righteous, just, and true, that is now lived within us as a follower of Christ, is against our flesh. And what we need to understand here, church, when we consider this, is we cannot take a casual view of sin and live successfully as a Christian. We must be resolved to mortify the sin of our flesh. John Owen, a popular Puritan theologian, pastor, has written a great work, a great book called The Mortification of Sin. If you've not read that, I recommend reading it to really get a true, a clearer, more vibrant picture of what sin is and its destruction and desire for us. This is an excerpt from what he says. So that sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing and tempting, who can say that he had ever anything to do with God or for God, that indwelling sin had not a hand in the corrupting of what he did. And this trade, it will drive more or less all our days. If then sin will be always acting, if we be not always mortifying, we are lost creatures. He that stands still and suffers his enemies to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, watchful, strong and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we be slothful, negligent, foolish, and proceeding to the ruin thereof, can we expect a comfortable event? There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. The battle lines are drawn. Opposition has entered the picture as flesh and spirit are locked in a power struggle of who will surrender to whom. But verse 18 tells us that instead of living under the law of sin and death, instead of having to strive under our own efforts, trying in vain to meet the law's demands, we rather find beautiful freedom and success against sin in Christ, as we no longer have to attempt to mortify sin in our own power when we're led by the Spirit. And church, this is really, really good news. This is really good news. Paul can authoritatively write about this, not only theologically from his position as an apostle, but also experientially from simply being a man. And I'm so glad that under the Spirit's inspiration that the Holy Spirit allowed Paul to capture this little window into his own internal struggle over in Romans chapter seven. I wanna read an excerpt of that for you. Paul says in Romans seven, beginning in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can anyone relate to that? I know I can. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. As followers of Christ, we have to acknowledge that we're locked in a battle between two natures. And every moment, we are either conquering sin and the power of the Holy Spirit, or sin is conquering us. And once we've acknowledged this, the next natural question then becomes, who's winning? Who is winning in our ongoing battle against sin? So as we first looked at the nature of the battle described, now let's next look at the leader of the battle exposed. Continuing in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So first we see evidence the flesh is taking the lead. Notice here Paul says these are the works of the flesh. These are works. These are things we set our minds and our hands to do. These are the things that we pursue after. And Paul says that the works of the flesh, these things that are originating from our sinful flesh, from our broken condition, are obvious. Whether they're even, you don't have to even be in Christ and in the church to see things like these and know that these are works of the flesh, that they come out of human desire. And Paul gives a list, a collective of different things that cover different aspects of our life and our walk with Christ and with others. And these things are naturally found in those who are outside of Christ, but can even be found in those who are living on autopilot or unintentionally with God. Paul gives four really different categories. You can kind of group these things in the four categories of sex, religion, relationships, or indulgences. And just in case you're looking at the list and going, well, my sin struggle is not really listed there, Paul concludes it with saying, and things like these. Because in our depravity, we have no shortage of creating things to pursue after that are not in line with God's desire for us and God's best for us. Also note, too, that Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That could literally be transliterated, those who make a practice of doing these things. When we are inwardly regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, he takes up residence with us. And we're given a new nature with new desires, namely the desire to please God. And Paul's issuing a warning here. If we are just walking through life, pursuing the desires of our flesh, with no concern whatsoever for rejecting those and trying to please God, then that should give us pause. That should give us cause for concern to discern, will we truly inherit the kingdom of God? Because what Paul is saying here is that if we're pursuing after that with no desire to push against it, no desire to reject those things that we know are not in line with God's law, that it may mean that we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a similar warning. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There it is again. And here's another list. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The difference is, church, when the Spirit of God enters us, the work of regeneration begins. We are washed clean from our sin in God's sight. Our standing before the Father becomes not guilty. The process of sanctification begins, as does the mortification of our flesh. And we are given a new desire, a new nature to push against those things and to pursue after the things of Christ. And so then Paul continues in Galatians 5, contrasting the works of the flesh by giving us the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, but there's the contrast. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So we've seen the evidence the flesh is taking the lead. Now we see the evidence the Spirit is taking the lead. And notice the list. Paul calls this fruit singular, the fruit of the Spirit. Our works, the works that he's talking about, the works of the flesh back in verse 19 are those things we do, the things we set our hearts and minds out to do. But here he calls this fruit. These are not things we strive for to do. We don't strive ourselves to create peace or love or joy or kindness in ourselves. Paul says these are the fruit, the produce, the result of a life that is in step with and walking with the Spirit of God. What is in view here is essentially a character sketch of Christ. And as we, our life is being transformed by the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is working in us is a transformation that is conforming us from one degree of glory to another, conforming us more and more and more into the image of God's Son, of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful here, Paul says, against such things there is no law. We don't get these qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all these things by working harder, by trying harder for them, by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying to muster them up. We get these things because we belong to Christ and we have the Holy Spirit of God working through us. And these fruits, this fruit, this result, this produce comes from a life that's yielded to him. Paul wants us to see that a consistent display and growth in Christ-like character actually does provide assurance and evidence that we do belong to Christ, that we will inherit the kingdom of God. The verse we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we read 9 and 10, which is another list by Paul, but he continues that passage in verse 11 where he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, how? And by the Spirit of our God. Paul's trying to get us to see that our identity is no longer in our flesh, the works of the flesh. We've been given a new nature, a new identity. And those things that we once were, those things that we once were associated with, those things that we once were involved with, that our identity might have even been tied to. We've now been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says it this way, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So as we survey who is in the lead in our lives, our flesh 
or the Holy Spirit, we must ask ourselves, do we see the fruit of the Spirit at work in forming the character of Christ in us? So we've looked at the nature of the battle described. We've just looked at the leader of the battle exposed. And finally, let's see the strategy to win the battle revealed. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And so as we look at the strategy to win the battle revealed, first we see one key is a new identity in the Son. Paul's statements here, statement here is definitive. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As we saw just a couple of weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who? Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this is because those who do the will of the Father are only able to do the will of the Father because they belong to him, because they belong to Christ. And by review, do we remember what was the will of the Father? To believe on him who sent Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his work, The Cost of the Discipleship, The Cost of Discipleship, succinctly says it this way: only the believing obey, only the obedient believe. It is only through our belief and our identity and our position in Christ that we are even empowered through his spirit to walk in obedience to him. And our obedience to him, our walking with him, shows forth the fruit that we are in Christ. The good news is that once we belong to Christ, we have been given the amazing gift of his presence, the amazing gift of the Spirit of God to walk with us. And this is a past tense statement. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This isn't a call to work harder, to try harder. It's a calling to focus on the fact that we have a new identity, a new reality that's ours in Christ. Jesus says it like this in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and what will he do? He will give you another helper. For what? To help you keep his commandments. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. As he's opening his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Once we belong to Christ, we not only have a new identity, we not only have a new nature within us, we now have a new power available to us. And though the ultimate war with sin has been definitively dealt with and definitively won by Jesus through his sinless life, through his death in our place, through his resurrection bodily and his ascension, back to heaven, and we have now been given the power to succeed as we face the remaining battles with sin until the day that he calls us home. So for those who belong to Christ, we have what we need. So the question is not, do we possess the Spirit? The question is not, do we possess enough of the Spirit? The question is not, do we possess all of the Spirit? The question is, are we operating and walking within the power of the Spirit that we possess? So we've seen a new identity in the Son, and second, we see a new activity in the Spirit. Verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in 
step with the Spirit. Stay in alignment with, yield to, and surrender the Holy Spirit. How do we do this? Romans 8, 5, Paul writes, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. Ever since I've uh, come across this verse, I came to Christ after uh, I was in the Marine Corps, and so from the first time I came across this verse, keep in step with the Spirit, my mind immediately goes to marching. And I was just thinking back, I hate to admit this, but next year will be 30 years since I showed up at Paris Island uh, as a brand new recruit. And one of the very first things they taught us is how to get in a formation and how to march. And one of the fundamental elements of marching is staying in step. When you're marching, you have someone outside the platoon, a parasail, a drill instructor, other settings, a platoon commander, calling the instruction, telling you where to go. You're standing in a line of people. That's called a squad. You have a squad leader in the front. That squad leader is following those commands and going where the leader of the platoon says go. And your only job is to put your foot right where the foot of the person in front of you just landed, to keep in step with that person that's right in front of you. And if you get out of step, you have, a, you have a command that you're given. It's called a change step. You self-correct. That's what you're told to do. You self-correct. So you get out of step and you realize you're out of step. You immediately self-correct to get yourself back in step. Why? Because a platoon that's out of step just looks horrible. It just looks wrong. You can ask my wife. I cannot see a military formation marching that gets out of step without having a visceral response and commenting on it. Like, what? Ah, I have to say something. It's like I want to go correct it. It just looks bad. But church, in the same way, a Christian who gets out of step with the Holy Spirit, it just looks bad. It does not display the beauty and the glory of what we are called to display as image bearers of Christ. And just like marching, we have been given the ability to self-correct. We've been given the ability through the Holy Spirit to recognize as the Father calls the commands and the Spirit leads in, in obedience to the Father, and we just place our feet where the Spirit's leading. And if we get ourselves out of step with that, our response is to immediately self-correct so that we can stay in step with the Spirit and display the beauty and the glory of what God, God has called us to. We won't turn there, but in Ephesians 5, really the entire chapter, Paul kind of gives a, a lot of helpful, practical ways that we can do just this, keep in step with the Spirit. In verses 1 and 2, he talks about being imitators of God. That's doing exactly what we see Jesus doing, exactly what we see, how we see the Father leading to imitate him and to strive to live our lives in alignment with that. In verses three through five of Ephesians five, Paul talks about replacing the filth of word and deed with thanksgiving and holiness. That's keeping in step with the spirit in our thoughts and in our actions and behaviors. In verses six through eight of Ephesians five, Paul talks about being committed to gospel doctrine. That's staying in step with the spirit doctrinally, not allowing false teaching and false doctrine to come in. In verses 9 through 18, Paul variously talks about living an intentionally gospel-centered life, driven and influenced by the things of God, not the things of this world, being missional, being on purpose for God and for his kingdom. That is keeping in step with the Spirit. And in verses 19 to the rest of the chapter, Paul talks about what it looks like to be in Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring relationship with one another within the church and within our families 
and within our homes. All of these things are elements and ways that we keep in step with the Spirit as we seek to follow him in our lives. Paul closes this chapter in chapter 5 and verse 26 with a specific example for the church in Galatia, demonstrating how for them keeping in step with the Spirit should look, how it should be eliminating the enmity and the strife and the division that's been occurring there in their church. But even from us, even from their specific address, we can draw principles from that to see how we can practically apply that to each day, each moment of our lives as we seek to follow the Spirit in our attitude, in our conduct, in all of our relationships. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our sin has been paid for once and for all. We are no longer under the penalty of sin because Jesus dealt with that at the cross, and that has been definitively dealt with if we are in Christ. One day when Jesus calls us home, we will be completely done away with the presence of sin. We'll no longer have this battle. It'll be over. And right here, from now until then, in the already but not yet reality that we live in a broken world but redeemed by Christ and awaiting to be called back to him, we have the ability to be delivered even from the power of sin by a stronger power, the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And so as we land the plane today, as we wrap this up, three takeaways to summarize the message today. The first thing, church, is just know, accept that we're in a battle. We cannot live life on autopilot as a follower of Christ. We cannot bury our head in the sand and assume that the battle with sin is over. We are either killing sin or sin is killing us. Next, we should be regularly evaluating our life. Is our life displaying the works of the flesh? Is that what we're pursuing after? Is that our desire? Do we have no desire whatsoever to push against that? Or are we consistently trying to display the fruit of the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to do his work within us, his transformative work of making us more and more like Christ, developing more and more Christ-like character in us? And then each day, each moment, are we keeping in step? Are we staying in step with the Spirit of God? Are we self-correcting and self-adjusting as the Spirit brings to our attention the ways that we're out of alignment with Him? As we do this, we as followers of Christ can be fully representative of the beauty and the glory of the identity that we hold as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? Our God, as we close our time in the Word and prepare uh, to have a time of remembrance and communion before you. God, I just want to just pause and just thank you. Just thank you for the gift and the promise of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples, you told us that you would be with us always, even to the end of the age, that you would give us a helper, a paraclete, someone, the Holy Spirit, to come alongside of us, to walk with us, to be a restraining influence and an empowerment against the desires of our flesh, to help us to be transformed more and more to where they become less and less of a struggle, or at a minimum, even just to have the power to walk through them day by day. Thank you, God, for that tremendous gift. Holy Spirit, we know that one of your ministries is that of shining a searchlight in our hearts, illuminating both your word and the areas of our lives that are out of step. And so I trust that you have been doing that even now as we have been 
studying your word, even as you did in my own heart as I was preparing it. Lord, as we sang at the beginning, as we prayed at the beginning, we are so often prone to wonder, God, we need you. Help us, Father, to be mindful of the battle that we are in, to always be evaluating where we are and how is our walk, and to consistently correcting, allowing the correction of your Holy Spirit to have its full and effective work in us, to empower us against those struggles in our flesh, and continue to prepare us and equip us to the day that we stand before you, fully justified because of Christ. Father, as we prepare to turn towards the Lord's Supper, our time of remembrance, just as we've been talking, we have an opportunity now to pause and reflect, to inspect our lives, to allow you, Holy Spirit, to inspect our lives, to know if there is any, anything in us that's out of step. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do that right now? Fathers, those things are revealed to us. Help us to be quick to change step, to once again get in line with you, to do that through confession by agreeing with you, confessing our sins that we are wrong, confessing where we come up short, and repenting, changing our minds, changing our walk, reorienting, once again yielding and surrendering and submitting to you and your guidance and direction. And as we do that, Father, we know we are not met with condemnation. We know we are not met by your wrath because those have been satisfied on the cross. We know we are met with the full forgiveness and reception of you through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And you tell us that if we will confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, for that assurance. So as we continue in worship today, Father, help us to live our lives in light of the identity in Christ that we possess. Help our lives be a beautiful reflection of what you have done and what you are continuing to do in our lives as you continually transform us into the image of your Son. We thank you, Father. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention today. It's so great to be with you and have an opportunity to lead us through this time together. And now, in a moment, we are going to continue worshiping through song and prepare our hearts for communion. The way we practice communion here at Lord's Supper here at Cross Community Church is what we call close communion, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church to participate. The only requirement is that you belong to Christ. Uh, for us here, that you have been baptized by immersion as a sense of identity and a symbol of your death to your old life and being raised to new life in Christ. And you are walking faithfully with him, keeping in step with the spirit as he leads. And so the way we'll do that is in a moment, we'll stand to sing. We'll have two tables up front with two stations at each table. And at each station, there'll be two cups stacked together, one with bread, one with juice. As you feel led, the Holy Spirit leads, feel free to move forward to any of those stations Grab a set of cups for you and someone else if needed and go back down the outside aisles, back to your seats and just hang on to that. And I'll come back up after we sing and lead us together in partaking in the Lord's Supper.
If you don't know where your standing is today, if you're not sure if you belong to Christ or if you're wrestling with some challenge or area of life, our prayer team is across the back. They're wearing green lanyards. They would love to receive you. They would love the opportunity just to hear your heart, to share with you from God's word, to encourage you, to point you towards Christ. And so feel free either to come forward and get your communion and go meet with one of them or just go straight back to where they are. Or if it's what's best for you today, just stay right where you are and just spend that time in reflection before the Lord. So with that, let's stand together. Let's continue and worship through song as we partake of the Lord's Supper.